I'd like to acknowledge the Wajak Noongar people on whose land we gather today and I respect their elders past and present. I'd also like to thank Ross for inviting me to give this talk tonight. So, does the frog have Buddha nature? So, what is it about frogs that opens us up to the mysteries of nature? Frogs are one of those animals that we know are out there, but um, they're encountered rarely enough to remain mysterious to us. But they seem to be as popular as ever these days. Um, some reasons being perhaps their large eyes, they're nocturnal animals, so they, they have these large eyes to see in the night, kind of like geckos, which are also people like. Um, they have a non-threatening disposition. They're sort of peaceful creatures. They're small. They don't uh, bite or scratch like some of the other reptiles I'm involved with. Um, maybe it's their current conservation plight. Um, Frogs are under threats for a variety of reasons um, caused by humans. So maybe we feel responsible for this and um, are, are interested in their, in their fate. Another unique thing about frogs is the hop. So you'll be looking at a frog and then all of a sudden it'll just have this small and explosive movement. Um, which is kind of startling and comical at the same time. And it could just jump into a pond even, kerplop. So as the state's reptile and frog biologists, I hear lots of stories from people about encounters with these animals. So just as everyone has a snake story, um, most people often have a frog encounter story as well, one that appeared in the laundry or the toilet in the house somehow, or one that you dug up or uncovered in the, gubber, uh, in the garden and so on. Um, and you can tell me your stories afterwards, so I'll be all ears. Um, but tonight I'll be focusing on one aspect of frog biology and how it can opus, open us up to nature. And this is the calls that frogs make. So I'll be talking about frog calls, but also other aspects of sound and hearing. And so when I mean um, nature, what I mean is the nature out there, but also in a more Buddhist vein, our own self-nature. So I'll try to get into 
some of these themes. So unlike the reptiles that I also work on, um, frogs, in contrast, are a truly musical animal. And as a general music person, since being a kid, I've been obsessed with music my whole life. Um, and I'm just as obsessed as ever. So um, when I was lucky enough to fall into a career as a reptile biologist, mostly, I was eventually lured to the calls of frogs in the 1990s um, when I first moved to Perth and began studying them at UWA. Um, and it was this species. So this is the quacking frog. Um, so you might hear this one at bailing up where we do our spring sessions. They're one of the um, species of frogs that you might hear. So um, the calls of frogs are um, extremely varied from species to species. Um, and here in the Southwest we have especially a wide range of frog call sounds. So I think part of this stems from only having two and a half species of tree frogs, which tend, which are usually the more common kind of frog, um, and usually have sort of whistles and clicks and beeps and things like that. So um, we'll just have a listen to what some of these sound like. So that one in the foreground you can hear is the grady one, that's the slender tree frog. Again, you can hear them at bailing up if you're, if you're um, listening out for them. And the other one is the motorbike frog, which sounds like, well, a motorbike accelerating. So um, these species are climbers, and um, they're the ones you probably get in your backyard, because they can climb over fences they don't have to have the soil conditions just right. They can sort of hang out in the vegetation, um, and that's where you'll, you'll probably um, see them. So all those three frogs, the quackers, the slender, and the motorbike, that's the sort of frogs that the, the Yaza crew on the last day of session might be um, really tuned into. Um, so the other um, two dozen or so species we have here in the southwest are what's known as ground frogs. So this is a group that's been in Australia for tens of millions of years. It doesn't climb, it doesn't have the, the sucker toes. They're down in the soil amongst the leaves and the mud. Um, they like to burrow as well. So um, here's one of the common ones we get in Perth.
So this is the moaning frog, or moaner, the uh, Helioporus eri, if you're paying attention to the um, scientific names. So this is a species that um, kind of kicks off the southwest frog season in autumn, because we have a very dry Mediterranean climate, of course. And then in, um, when, the winter, uh, when the autumn rains come, these guys fire up. They'll start digging burrows once the soil's been a bit moistened up, and they'll start calling from there. Um, so they used to be more common on the Swan Coastal Plain with all the seasonal, seasonally inundated wetlands. But of course, um, we live in their former swamps now. So, uh, but they're still in a few spots and out on the edges. And um, often I know it's frog season at the museum because my phone will start ringing with complaints of these frogs. So they're the number one frog that gets complaints because um, if people are watering their gardens in summer, then some young male frogs will think uh, right under someone's bedroom window is a really great place to dig a burrow and start calling. Um, so by the time people call me, they've, uh, they're basically out of their minds, lack of sleep <laughs> deprivation. And it's like, oh, frog season's here. Um, so um, now because it's a, a frog drama talk, so there's frog in there, so you're going to have to learn some frog facts. So um, just some basics are that uh, within a species, only the males call. So... Um, there's been anecdotes of females calling, but nothing substantiated, so um, it's basically the males. And in, uh, there's two main parts to <coughs> frog calls, at, uh, usually. So uh, the first part, if we translate it into humanese, might be, hey baby, um, because the male is trying to attract a female to himself so he can get a mating. Um, and that's, so all, Frog calls have that component, but the other component, um, again in humanese, might be called bugger off, and that's for the, all the other males that are also competing for the females. Um, and if scientists do playback experiments um, to males and females, then if there's a call not designed for their sex, they don't even hear it. They don't pay attention to it. They're only going towards uh, the sound that's um, for them. So calls are unique to the species, which is really great. So compared to something like a snake, um, frogs cry out the name of their species, which is really handy. Um, the hearing of females is finely tuned to the sound of um, the male's voice. So from a female perspective, you have all these eggs, you're coming into a chorus to, to mate. And so if you mate with the wrong male, You've just wasted all your eggs. So they're very species-specific tuned. Um, females are also attuned to qualities of the male. So it might be something like the resonance of his voice, getting at his size, or some complexity, or some melodious elements we don't understand. Um, but the females are very good listeners. Um, so in WA, we have about... 30 species in the southwest, 40 species in the Kimberley. So Kununara is like the frog capital of WA. It's a great place to go. Um, and then in, in the arid zone, there's 
less species, but there, one, one species will cover massive areas of the arid zone uh, with a few interesting species in the Pilbara. So Pilbara is a great region for reptile diversity and all sorts of things, and frogs are in on that act too, and there's a few weird ones there. Um, so globally, there's, at, at the moment, there's over 7,100 species of frogs. Um, so a few years ago, the reptile people got over 10,000 reptiles in the world. Um, the bird people sort of got their nose out of joint about that. So they looked at all the, um, their species and they raised all these subspecies and named all these populations uh, species to stay ahead of the reptiles. Um, but, be but because most of the birds were found and discovered about 100 years ago, uh, reptiles have steadily climbed um, and overtaken birds again. But frogs are on an extremely steep curve, and so frogs may have the last laugh um, because, because of the calls and genetics, uh, there's just seeming, there's more and more frogs all the time. Um, so just a bit on frogs versus birds. So in Zen discussions, birds get a lot of airtime. Um, you know, Ross and Michael Wright have these bird totems, and we're always listening to birds in the morning and all this stuff. But I guess, like a lot of lifelong reptile and amphibian people, um, I've been more hands-on person my whole life. That's how I uh, got into lizards and snakes and frogs. Um, I would run around and just and catch these things, but because I couldn't catch birds. Um, they're just these sort of noisy, flappy things in the edge of my awareness that I've never really paid attention to until I started sitting. Um, so maybe some of it's professional jealousy because um, birdos are the dominant um, animal-watching group amongst the public. Um, and, of course, with mammals, there's a few sort of cute, teary-eyed species that take up pretty much all the conservation money. Um, but I guess I like the weirder, sort of hard-to-see, hard-to-find vertebrate animals out there. Okay, that's my little rant. Now here's a, here's a bunch of frogs.
All right, well, I'll get to those frogs in a second, but in the Dr. Seuss story, Horton hears a who. This is a story about an elephant that hears a faint cry of some voices from a dust speck. And these voices are from a world of tiny, tiny people that only Horton can hear with his giant ears. Um, so the story involves Horton carrying around this dust speck, uh, which is on a dandelion, to protect the small world. But some mischievous, some mischievous non-believing jungle creatures, such as kangaroos and monkeys, try to take the dandelion away from him uh, to destroy it and, you know, get him out of his delusion. But eventually the Who's from Whoville make just enough sound, which is a whole other part of the story, so that the animals in the jungle are aware of the Who's and then look after them according to Horton's motto he says throughout this story, a person's a person no matter how small. So as a frog biologist, I can relate to Horton a bit because when I'm out in the field, I'm continually straining my ears to hear the sounds of frogs, as if there's a Whoville out there waiting to be heard. So in the four calls I played before, the first three were of species my field companions and I discovered in the Kimberley during the wet season. So the first one was the chattering rock frog, Latoria staccato, then the tiny toadlet, Euphorilia micra, and then the Kimberly rocket frog, Latoria axillaris. Um, so what's it like to discover a new species by sound? Um, well, this sounds strange, but in my experience, discovering new species is um, most akin to having your house or car, car burgled. So um, if you've been robbed, and I presume some of you have been robbed in your lifetime, it happens. So the first thing you do is go, oh, the door's open. I must have, I must have forgot to shut the door. And oh, there's a bunch of things on the floor. Um, maybe the wind knocked them down, or the cat put them, pushed them on the floor. Um, and there's a, it takes a little while to get used to the new reality, because you've been anticipating your old reality, which is no longer there. And the new reality is like, ah, this is a bit surreal. This is not fitting. Um, so that's what it's kind of like. Um, so yeah, so the, the fourth frog there, the little ratchety one, um, that was at a night, after the, at the end of a night of frogging in the Drysdale River at the top of the Kimberley. And um, as usual with these trips, we get dropped off on helicopter, the helicopter flies away, see you later. And then we run around catching all sorts of stuff and seeing what we can see. And so we had a full night and came back at the end of the night. And then um, everyone was going to their tents. And I was like, oh, I can, hear, I can hear this frog. And my friend Renee wanted me to check this frog out. We haven't seen it on, haven't heard it on this trip. And so um, I remember just without much thinking, I told people what I was doing, but then I just went for the sound of, this, uh, of these frogs because I knew I had to go to them. So it was kind of like a, that sort of moment where you're sort of engaged in the sound and just going. And uh, the frogs are like two centimeters long and there was only a few of them calling. And I ended up 
based on GPS coordinates, walking about two kilometers through the, the bush, like through forests and up and down and all that sort of stuff. Um, but yeah, that my uh, hoarding ears kept me going and um, that was just sort of that experience. Um, now one recording, one recording I didn't play, but that I'll tell you about was also in the Northern Kimberley in Cater's Island. And this was a, um, this is in the extreme north where there's not any people around for hundreds of kilometers. And this was again a helicopter survey with the government. And um, I was with my buddy Vince, the mad Czech, who is a snail hunter. He's about 70 years old. So as usual, he was just working for, looking for snails around the tents. And then I was trying to basically survey all the habitats on the island in one night. So it was always a big night. Um, so on this night, I uh, ran into the tiny toadlet again, my new friend, which was the second time I had run into him. Um, I encountered some rare geckos. A big storm hit at one point, so I remember having to shelter in a cave and found some other stuff there. And when the, the rain passed, I, uh, you know, you could see the stars, and it's like, this is really great, you know, being out here. Um, and then I heard the sound I couldn't, I couldn't quite make out. And I was up on this ridge and it's like, uh, what is that sound? And then um, it came to me, it was Michael Jackson. And, um, <laughs> and then sure enough, a minute or so later, this uh, boat, this tourist boat came around the corner <laughs> and it had all these disco party lights on the, the top and people dancing and it's like, it was a surprise, it was a discovery. So yeah, just uh, keep on your toes. Um, all right, so getting back to the, um, the frog dharma thing. So having a job as a biologist uh, where I get to do field work as part of my normal activities has kind of been an unforeseen but wonderful thing in my life. So um, if I was a geneticist, for example, or a zoo or a vet or something, um, I might still think about animals and their environments and their evolutionary relationships, um, but I wouldn't be—I wouldn't have to go out in the bush um, to go and get in touch with my subject animals. So um, I think when you're out in the bush, it's a—it's a wonderful release from the stresses of modern life in in our cities. So um, some of you may recall. Um, from one of Mary Ridwin's Tay shows um, about the, the sort of the boat in the mist. And it, that story goes something like this. So you're in the morning, you're in this uh, boat, dinghy or something, um, and then all of a sudden this other boat sort of carelessly smashes into your side and your immediate reaction is to be angry at the other skipper for being so careless. But then you realize it's just an empty boat. Um, there's no other human to hang your negativity on, and so your anger just sort of uh, dissipates. Um, and I feel that's the same way um, when you're out in nature, because um, if you're walking along and you, um, you stub your toe on a rock, or you get pricked by a stick, or you stack it in a clump of spinifex, um, it's, just, it's just you, really. It's, it's you and your thoughts about the world, but there's not any sort of other 
um, human to sort of get in this sort of perpetual battle that we, we do in the traffic and in the shops and all this other sort of stuff. Um, yeah, so um, one way to put it differently is uh, we have a chance in nature to escape our own um, self-projected likes and dislikes that we put onto the world and, and see them for what they are because it's just us. Um, maybe that's a little bit like the Zen too. Um, so a point I'm trying to make here is that when we're in nature, it returns us to our ancestral world, to where our bodies and minds have come from. So I think civilization is nice, it's comfortable, it's easy, it's entertaining, um, but society also untethers us from the ancestral context of the way we interact with our social and physical environment. So um, I imagine back in the past, before all this civilization, to get in touch with nature, it, you didn't have to plan a holiday or plan a bushwalk with your friends and drive to this place. You could just go for a stroll out of the camp and, and there you were. It, it wasn't a um, big deal to find a bit of solitude and that sort of commune with nature if you wanted to. All right, so how do the sounds of frogs bring us back to nature, to our, few, to our true selves? So in other words, what is this frog dharma? So time for more calls. Kimberly Chorus. Um, experiencing unusual sounds in nature, such as hearing frog calls, presents an opportunity to truly hear the sounds as they are. So frogs have a kind of surprising counterintuitive feel to them. They occur well within the range of the human voice, um, which gives them a kind of fresh and familiar sound um, and hopefully makes for an invigorating listening experience. And like I said before, because frog sounds are also rarely encountered during the year, um, given our busy concrete jungle basic daily existences, they can come to us um, fresh. So it's true that you can unite with sounds such as traffic, ravens, people moving in the dojo, but hearing new unusual sounds out there can present new opportunities. Um, like this guy.
Okay, that's the Wachalum frog, Latoria wachalumensis. Um, so this species occurs in the Kimberley and also goes across to the top end. Um, and the males get themselves in these kind of intense uh, trance-like calling sessions. So that was just one male calling there. Um, but usually there's a, there's a bunch um, and they're super, it's a very dynamic thing because when they go to the double time, they'll be going half time and then one will go double time and then they'll all go like, they'll go in. Um, they're moving around the chorus, so I was uh, really lucky to get that recording. Um, I consider this frog a kind of party frog because they're a really late night frog. So at dusk, most species will start to call. Um, this species is quiet. And then when most species start to tucker out around midnight, 1, 2 a.m., uh, this species really gets into it. And they'll do this sort of crazy calling all the way until dawn when definitely there's no other frogs calling. So they'll actually overlap with birds in the morning. Um, also interestingly, that there's a, they're weird for another reason, which is that the males are half the size, half the length of the females. So the males are about 35 mils, the females are about 70 mils, and much, much more massive. So when you do see a mated pair, it's just this little male getting a piggyback ride on this giant female. So there's something weird going on with these species. <laughs> <laughs> if they were in uh, <clears throat> Perth or near a capital city, there'd be a lot of papers on them, but now there's zero papers. So, you know, it's out there. Um, so we enjoy the, the call of the, the Watchland frog and... It's, it's good being alive sometimes because nature can produce things that uh, humans can delight in that really aren't designed for our ears, um, our enjoyment. So, you know, rainbows, for example, they didn't have to exist really, um, but they do. And then our visual and shape perceptions centers in our brain can go, oh, behold the rainbow. So... Um, <laughs> we can like different frogs' sounds, just like we do the rainbow. So here's one here. So this is the hooting frog, Heliopterus varicragus. Um, so when people ask me, what's your favorite frog? This is one of them. This is the, one of my favorite southwest frogs. Um, it's a large-bodied and slow-moving frog, and it's endemic to the Dar Darling Range. And if you listen carefully, it may even be presenting a koan. So, yeah, that's just a local species. You can go out in autumn and May and listen out for them if you want. But not all frog sounds are pleasant necessarily. So um, when I was in Albany last month, 
during National Science Week, I was doing public talks and doing the, um, the high schools, and I was at Northern Albany Senior High, and after the talk, I got some interest from, they asked, asked a lot of good questions, and one of them, one guy asked me, it's like, what's your least favorite frog call? And I said, okay, good question, because I have an answer. It's this one. So this one is, um, it's, it's often called the dunny frog, because if you're out in the outback, and then, you know, there's, sometimes you go to the shower block or the, um, uh, the toilet, and then there's these frogs in the window, and there's frogs on top of the cistern, and there's sometimes frogs in the very bowl that you'll have to navigate in your, somehow. Um, that's usually this species. Um, and I, my nickname for it is the seagull frog because, um, you know, you're eating your chips at a beach and then it's fine when there's one gull, but when there's multiple gulls, they start doing all this stuff in front of you and that's what this reminds me of. Um, so these two calls lead to the next part of the talk. Um, so many of us here at the Zigwa are familiar with Charlotte Joko Beck's books and her teachings. Um, and indeed, when I first got into Zen in the late 90s, uh, a friend gave me Taking the Path of Zen by Robert Aitken, as well as Everyday Zen by Charlotte Joko Beck. And that's how it all started. Um, so this is one of her books, uh, Nothing Special. It's very worn out, with lots of little folded edges. So um, near the end of the book, there's a chapter called the sound of a dove and a critical voice. So in this chapter, she recalls a student from the other side of the US ringing her up um, to relay to her how wonderful she felt when she heard the sound of a dove in the morning. And so uh, Joko, with her somewhat characteristic killjoy teaching approach, <laughs> came back with, that's wonderful. So, but suppose that instead of hearing the dove, you hear a critical voice finding fault with you. What's the difference between the sound of a dove and the sound of a critical voice? So I've always been stuck on the horns of this little dilemma. Um, as it gets to the heart of where I am usually at in my practice. So um, Ross has brought up a few times her koan, don't be angry, which is, which is one. And, um, this is kind of has a similar flavor because don't be angry. It's like, well, it's like as soon as someone tells you not to be angry, you're mad at the person telling you what to do. So then you have to say, oh, and pause a bit. So um, in this case, um, she says, for example, what's the critical voice? But uh, it's actually Joko, again, is the agent sort of uh, pushing the student to... Um, Awakening or something. Um, all right, so um, in this chapter, like a lot of our books, there's a bit of a dialogue with the students um, where they dive into this a bit. And um, so just to get to the point, so the main difference between the two is our opinions that we attach to the two different sounds. So 
We like one and we don't like the other. Um, so she says, in just hearing, there is no opinion. When the sound hits our eardrums, there is no opinion, there is just hearing. All day long, sensory information comes in, but from the human point of view, only some of it is acceptable. Certainly we don't want to listen. Over years of sitting, however, that unwillingness slowly changes. Sitting is not about being blissful or happy. It's about finally seeing that there is no real difference between listening to a dove and listening to a critical voice. The difference is only in our mind. This struggle is what practice is about. So it's an interesting, and to me, sort of counterintuitive argument, which is a good sort of teaching thing, um, and one that I keep sort of coming back to with, with um, sounds and hearing. So um, getting back to frogs, what does, it, what does all this have to do with frogs? So, you know, I'll reemphasize frog sounds are unusual to our ears. Um, and there's a range of different calls. So not all are pleasant, not all are harsh. Um, but we have an opportunity to just hear them as they are with the frog calls, as we're not bringing that many opinions to the, listening to the frogs as we would with doves and ravens and rubbish trucks and the tradie who starts drilling at 6 a.m. and all these sort of things we might listen to. So, um, time for some more frog calls. <laughs> All right, um, so I just want to touch on some aspects of uh, non-music and music and field recordings versus real life. So the calls you have heard so far, you can hear voices and cars and a bit of rain on the microphone and some bumping there, some wind. Um, these are all under the category of field recordings because they're not done in a studio. They're just captured out in the bush or um, in the city streets or in a restaurant 
They're not sort of rehearsed and, and planned. Um, and so one example of this might be um, if you've got any Riley Lee recordings of his uh, shakuhachi, he's got waves and gulls and, and things like that in there. And that's sort of incorporating the two things. But in other cases, just the straight up sounds. Um, and since I've just joined Spotify Premium, there's a whole bunch of stuff there. There's like waterfalls, crickets, you know. I don't know if there's traffic, but uh, there might be. Um, but yeah, you can find all those field recordings there. Um, so I guess with these recordings, they're not, um, they're interesting in that there's, they're sort of unselfconscious. There's no human agent sort of trying to craft a song or to get you to download the album and buy the t-shirt and all that sort of stuff. It's just the sounds, really. Um, so I'll just, I think we only have time. I'm gonna play one more. Um, so this is a track called Magic Window. It's um, by the band Boards of Canada, which is a, a electronic duo from Scotland with two brothers with different surnames. They um, don't have much stuff out, but um, this piece sort of channels John Cage's um, four minutes and 33 seconds, if you're familiar with that one, but it's a little bit shorter. So it goes for about two minutes. So yes, that was an entirely silent piece of music. Um, so in John Cage's version, so John Cage was a 20th century avant-garde music composer and Zen practitioner as well. So he would um, fuse some Zen ideas into his uh, pieces. So in four minutes and 33 seconds, 
there's a piano on stage and some instructions about the player coming and sitting down and they just sort of sit there. Um, and then that's it. And after four minutes and 33 seconds, that's the end. So, I mean, the idea is to, is to sort of open you up to the sounds of what is actually happening. Um, so yeah, that, I mean, that's the trick with these kind of pieces. So when you're, when I started playing it, and I actually did play it, um, <laughs> um, is, that, is that the performance? The pushing of the button, was it the traffic? Um, I made a few clicking sounds. I'm sure there were some other things. Um, but, um, I mean, it's kind of a semantic trick in a way, but is it really just like Zazen? I mean, we have 30 minutes. Um, it's not four minutes and 33 seconds. We have 30 minutes around, and this is also part of the point is to get you to open up and pay attention to what's really happening. All right. I'm gonna have to skip a bunch of really good stuff. <laughs> um, <laughs> so just to, um, so just to wrap up, um, the thing with field recordings is, um, I find it fascinating that, and it, you know, it's fun to do them. You can do them on your phone. Um, sometimes when you do a field recording and listen to it and listen back to it, it's like, wow, that was really cool. All that stuff was going on. Isn't that, wasn't, wasn't that a great moment? But um, I think the question is, um, isn't that kind of happening all the time? I guess that's the point. I'm jumping to the conclusion. <laughs> so... Um, I guess the bigger question seems to be, are you attending to life as it's happening? Um, okay. Let's skip those. Um, and I'll just leave you... So this one sounds very similar to the first one I played. The first one I played is the humming frog, which is more of an arid zone species that just comes to the edge of the hills. But um, this one, I could ask the question, does the cane toad have Buddha nature? <laughs> 